Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. I want to acknowledge that this may be sort of a deja vu moment for you. Uh, Like, what? Um, You know, this may be a deja vu moment for a couple reasons. One is, you know, you've heard this story and you're like, this story doesn't sound exactly right. Well, this event that we're reading about this morning happened actually twice in Jesus' ministry. It happened at the beginning which we're reading about today, at a party with a Pharisee named Simon and a nameless woman who comes in and anoints his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. And then it happens again at the end of his ministry. And we read about that in in Matthew chapter 26 or Mark 14. There's a woman uh, named Mary who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and it's at their house, and it's a gathering of really close friends, and she does the same thing. And Jesus says of her act... She's anointing me for for burial. So, deja vu moment. Look, this happens twice in Jesus' ministry. Two different people, two different places, two different purposes. So, that may be your deja vu moment. Some of you may have a deja vu moment because you're like, wait, didn't we talk about this last week? I mean, you know, we had, last week we read a passage about a party with a Pharisee, and this person comes in, and Jesus pulls out the parable... Um, grenade and pulls the pin and launches it and you get the boom, you know, like that's, you know, and that, that's sort of, you're like, didn't we do this last week? You know, and actually, if you are thinking that, congratulations, you are tuned in because these two stories, the one we did last week from Luke chapter 13 and this one today sort of go together and I'm treating them as parts one and two of the same sermon. But I will tell you that for me, this is really a deja vu moment because I preach on this passage about every other year. Um, I can't stay away from it. And, and I will 
well, you know, for those of you who've been around, this is a new sermon. I didn't just reuse it. But I, I cannot resist this story. This story is one of the, those passages of Scripture that just grabs me. It's one of those that I feel like this is about the most important thing we could ever talk about in this place. This is one of the most significant stories in the Bible for me personally, and I think for us as a community. And here's why. So I had, um, I had lunch last week with a friend, and it was a, it was a unique conversation. He says to me, you know, sometimes I wish I had sinned more in my past. And I was like, what? What? Um, yeah, you know, I really wish that I had more of like, you know, some kind of a dark story. You know, I had some more like rough stuff in my past, and then I come to faith in Christ out of that. You know, I see these people who come to faith in Christ as an adult, and they sort of seem to have something I don't. Now, what my friend was not saying was, hey, I wish there were, there's some more sinning that I'd really like to do. Or my lifestyle right now, my faith in Christ is holding me back from living a life to the fullest. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, on some level, my faith doesn't connect emotionally to the degree it should. Can you relate to that? You know, I think that it's, it's actually a significant issue for any generation. It's, but particularly for this one. Because we are a people and living in a time where we care, we are as interested in, in as uh, much in our emotions as we are in whether something is true or not. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. is It is almost... Um, some, some of you may say, I know the truths about the Bible. But the fact that they don't reach me, I might as well not even know them. I might as well be a person filled with doubt and insecurity about whether this is true. Because having feeling flat about your faith, for many people, is as bad or worse than not knowing whether it's true or not. Can you relate to that? You know, there's a sense in which if I feel nothing towards something says the common wisdom, what does it matter if it's true? So this is a sermon this morning for two types of people. First is that if you're a person who is a long-term Christian, but like my friend, would look back and say, you know what? There's something sort of emotionally disconnected from my story. There's something that doesn't quite fit. I should be more connected. I'm jealous of people who have the like out of darkness into like, the the blinding light of day moments, then this is a passage for you. And there is good news for people like you and people like me. But this is also a sermon for those of you who would say, you know what, I'm in the middle of the darkness right now. My life is not in a place where I feel like I've got something managed or figured out. In fact, I would say that I come into this place this morning feeling helpless and hopeless and not sure that this particular place has anything to offer me. And that is a dark place to be in. That is a hard place to be in. To walk into a church and say, I just don't know if this God wants anything to do with me. And there is good news for you. Let's look at this passage. Um, The setting, you know, is this. Jesus is invited to a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. And that in itself is kind of remarkable because if you read the first chapters of Luke, Jesus is particularly rough on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite of Israel in their day. They were also the social, 
elite and also the wealthy, the powerful. These were the people at the top of the chain, the top of the social hierarchy in Jesus' day. And at this party, a woman wanders in. And it tells us in the text, she's a woman of the city. That's actually a euphemism. It's like our word escort service. You know, it doesn't mean much, but it means a lot. We all know sort of what that means. She's a sex worker, right? Her life is, she's a prostitute. And so you may be asking what Simon is asking, which is like, what is she doing here? And we would ask that question because we don't know much about the ancient Near East. Houses in that day were very open places. It would not have been hard for her to actually walk in off the street into the house. But that's not the question that Simon is asking. He's not asking, how did she get in? He's asking, why did she come into this place? Why is she here? And then she comes in, and of course the dinner party is interrupted. The sobs, the weeping. I mean, this this passage defines awkward. It defines, you know, this is... This is an uncomfortable situation, to say the least. And the woman's weeping. And you can better you better believe that any conversation that's going on at this point in the party, and if anybody who's still talking has stopped talking, because the woman begins to do something even more provocative. She lets down her hair. In ancient Near Eastern culture, this was the ultimate in terms of an act of sexual uh, provocation, of intimacy, A husband could divorce his wife legally in in Israel in this day for her letting down her hair in public. That's where we get the phrase, let your hair down. Because it was an act of incredible intimacy that she is doing. Weeping over his feet, letting down her hair. And you can see what's going on. The wheels are turning. You know, here's Simon, and he says in his head, he says to himself, Gosh, yeah, if Jesus was any kind of a prophet... If Jesus was any kind of a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this this is. You know, he's like, paraphrase here, don't you know where that mouth has been? That's really what he's saying. And what's ironic is that Jesus answers him. You know, he's like, what kind of prophet is Jesus? And Jesus answers his internal thoughts. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. Now, what's fascinating in this passage is Noticing Luke, who writes uh, the Gospel of Luke, he, he is a man who's about detail. And as he be, writes this story, he gives an important note. He says, Jesus looked at the woman and said to Simon. And Jesus is engaged visually with the woman the whole time. Now, that's not a throwaway comment. Jesus is looking at this woman because he wants Simon to look at the woman. See, Simon, this woman's come in, and Simon's like, yeah, I've seen her. I've, I know all about this kind of person. In other words, he's, he's, it's almost like he's saying, hey, I've seen her, I've seen enough. You know that phrase, I've seen enough? Which means that what I'm looking at does not demand my attention or, or my value. So Jesus is looking at the woman. And I, I've had this happen before. Have you ever been in a situation where you're with two friends, and one of your friends is being very rude, And all they're doing is talking their comments straight to you. And they're sort of ignoring this third person. Now, what I've found out is if you would, if you turn away from your friend who's just being rude and you look at this third person, it forces this other person to have to acknowledge that they're there. You know, if you're like, you know, just turned away 
while they're like continuing to address you, it forces them to have to engage the third person. And that's what Jesus does. He's saying, look, I know that you've seen enough. I want you to see. See, this whole passage is about what people see. Simon sees the woman, but he doesn't see the woman. And because he doesn't see the woman, he actually doesn't see Jesus the way he really is. And he doesn't see himself. So Jesus whips out the parable. He pulls out the parable. And, you know, we've been talking about parables this whole uh, fall. Jesus' stories. And a parable is set up to function in such a way that it demands a response. It demands a judgment. You can see that in this passage. At the end of the parable, Jesus tells Simon, he says, Hey, Simon, so make a judgment. Right? Make a judgment. Parables work this way. It'd be like watching the World Series playoffs this week. They start up Wednesday. And you're watching the Phillies play. And Chase Utley comes up to bat, and he bats, and after he bats, he runs to first base, and it's a close call, whether he's out or not. And then something, everybody's looking around, because they're saying, where's the first base ump? Where's the guy who's going to make the call on this one? And suddenly, Chase Utley unbuttons his shirt and takes off his shirt, and underneath is an umpire's uniform, and he says, out! You know, calls himself out of there. He'd be like, what is going on? That is exactly... Exactly what happens in this parable. That's what parables do. Jesus says, you know, look, Simon, underneath what you're wearing right now is an umpire's uniform. You get to make the call. Are you safe or are you out? And Simon, he makes the right call. Out. See, let's look at the parable. Jesus tells a parable about two debtors. One of them owes the, 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 the money lender. 500 denarii, which is about a year and a half's salary. The other one owes about 50, which is about a month and a half's, a month's salary. And so it's clearly this setup, very simple parable, the parable of the two debtors. And, and he asks them, he asks Simon at the end of this, which one loves him more? And Simon says, pulls off the, the jersey, underneath it's the ump's uniform, and he says, out. You know, the one who loved more. And Jesus says, you're right. You have judged correctly. Which is ironic because Simon's been judging since the moment the woman walked in the room. He's been judging. See, here's how Simon had been calling the game up to this point. Simon had been saying, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are two kinds of people in the world. There's the law keepers and there's the law breakers. And it's pretty clear Between him and the woman, who's in what category? You know, both of them can identify in the story, hey, who's 500 and who's got 50? But Jesus tells this parable, and it begins to redefine some things. First, it begins to redefine the categories. Simon had said there are two kinds of people in this world. They're law keepers and law breakers. And Jesus' says, parable says, no, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who need grace and those who need grace. They're all the same. They may owe different amounts, but the problem is that they both owe, and both of them can't pay. So what's the difference? Both of them are in debt. You know, there's certain conditions in life that are, are not sort of conditions. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, right? You're either dead or you're not dead. Charles Spurgeon used to tell this story um, 
and I've used this a couple times, but it's my favorite illustration of this. But So he tells a story. He says, you know, imagine two people are in, in bed at night. Um, one guy in one room, as he falls asleep, a poisonous spider drops down from the ceiling. I know this is some of your worst fears. poisonous spider drops down from the ceiling, bites him almost imperceptibly, and in the middle of the night, the poison kills him. In the next room, there's another guy who's in bed. And this is probably not your fears, but I'll go ahead and create one anyway. A tiger breaks into the room, right? And a tiger breaks into the room and tears him to pieces. And there's not a whole lot left to kind of put together. Now, which person is more dead, Spurgeon would ask. Right? It's an absurd question. You know, you're, they're both dead. There's pretty dead. There's, you know, the one you can have the open casket funeral for, the spider bite. And then there's tiger dead. <laughs> there's ugly dead. But there's no difference, right? Both are in this place of inability. Both are in this place of dead. You're not sort of one or another. See how, see how this parable begins to change the categories. It's not that there's good and bad, righteous and unrighteous, more likely to be approved of by God, less likely to be approved of by God. It's all the same. Both are debtors. Both are unable to pay. You know, there's an old cliche phrase that was used in Christian circles, and I think it's been worn out now for so long that we could bring it back. And it goes like this. There, but for the grace of God, go I. And it's a phrase people used to say when they would look at other people around them, people who are apparently worse off, people who are apparently worse sinners, and they would say, we're just the same. We're exactly the same. We're both dead. We're both debtors. We're both unable to pay. We stand in the same place. Pastor Tim Keller in New York has a different version of the same thing where he says, you know, it's may not, you may not be Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for a lack, of, a lack of talent. All of us are the same. See, it's not that every sin is the same. It's not that every sin is the same, but every sin equally builds a debt that we cannot pay. We're a confessional church. What that means is that we have a standard of doctrine that's written up, that comes from Scripture, that all of our elders, just like Eric affirmed this morning, have to say, yeah, I sign off on this. I agree with this. And our confessional document says this. Hey, are all sins exactly the same? It says no. Some are more heinous than others. Some cause much more pain to other people. Some are more egregious than others. But then it asks the next question. Actually, two questions later. So, but does... What does every sin deserve in the hands of God? And it says every sin, from the greatest to the smallest, no matter what it is, deserves eternal judgment and condemnation. See, they're not all the same, but they all equally put us in God's debt. We're all, we're all the people who are unable to pay. See how the parable changes the categories? It also changes the definition of faith. Here's a woman, and here's Simon. What's the difference between the two of them as they encounter Jesus? One is aware of her need. The other is blissfully unaware. One of them is like, you know, I'm so... I, you know, what, kept, what, what brought that woman to that room? I could tell you wild horses couldn't keep the woman away from that place. She is so much aware of her need for Jesus. Simon is rather indifferent to Jesus. And it, see... See how the, the parable 
changes the categories. See how it begins to change the picture of what faith is. Faith is dependence. Faith is awareness of your need and your inability. And it also begins to change, changes and challenges our definition of sin. There was an ad a couple months ago that ran for ING, the finance company. And I, I like this ad because it showed people doing normal things. You know, mowing their grass, walking their dog, washing the dishes. And next to each person, it showed a number behind them. And the number would kind of bounce along behind them as they would mow the grass or whatever. And the number, because it's ING, a finance company, is supposed to be the number for how much you need to retire on. And the tagline of the the commercial was, what's your number? What's your number? And I, I think it's a very, very helpful question for us. What's your number? What do you owe? You know... Here's the, here's the thing. Do you know your number? This woman had a pretty good idea. She had a pretty good idea, not of the exact number, but how big it was. How immense it was. You know, Simon didn't have a clue. And I think that's, Jesus is being very kind to Simon after the parable, but very direct. Do you see what he says to him? Simon, do you see what you didn't do? If you think about this, this is look what Jesus says. He, he goes through what the woman has done and what he didn't do. He says, Simon, when I came in, you didn't kiss me. That's the custom. This woman has not stopped kissing me. Simon, when I came in, you gave me no water to wash. This woman has not stopped weeping over my feet. Simon, when I came in, you gave me no, no oil to anoint myself. This woman has poured perfume out all over me. Now, why is Jesus saying this? It's because he is sitting Simon down in a chair at the optometrist's office, and he's putting those focal things on him and helping him to try to see. Simon, you don't see right. Look, I want to show you, you're so focused on what all those things this woman has done that you don't see that sin is not just what you do, it's what you don't do. See, we use two words in the Bible to talk about sin. A lot of times in the church, we sort of combine them into one, but they're actually two words that are very helpful. And you know the two words. We talk about trespasses, and we talk about debts. You know trespassing. You know, the the sign's marked over the field that says no trespassing. And if you trespass, it means you go somewhere you shouldn't go. Simon is focused on this definition of sin. So he looks at the woman and says, she has gone lots of places she shouldn't go. I know that she's been. Do you know where that mouth has been? You know, he's focused on all the things that she has done. All the places that she has gone. And Simon's saying, I didn't do those things. I didn't go those places. You know, sometimes I think in the church, we have a hard time when it comes to confession. We do this as a family. We confess our sins as a family during our family devotion time. And sometimes we as a family, we, have, we come up and you hear people, the kind of crickets come on. Because yeah. like, we're all like, I don't know what I did today. Because we're so focused on trespasses. You know, the things that I shouldn't have done that I did. All the places I went to, I shouldn't have gone. And it's easy for people to think about sin in that category alone. Do you see what? Jesus is doing to Simon's vision. He's saying, look, Simon, it's not just 
It's not just trespasses. There's another word. And Jesus uses the word debt very, very pointedly. See, when Jesus uses the word debt, we know what debt is. Debt is things that you you didn't do, that you should do. You know, I need to pay this bill. I got to pay this bill. I owe something. I need to pay something. And it's a, it's a different picture of what sin is. Sin is not just going places you shouldn't go. It's looking at the things that you didn't do, that you should have done. We talk about that in our definition of sin here when we confess our sins many Sundays. Hey, Father, I ask you forgiveness for the things that I did do that I shouldn't have done, and I ask for forgiveness for the things that I should have done that I didn't do. Do you realize how this changes your number? Do you realize how much this changes our number? Because it changes the focus of sin for like, Lord, forgive me for the acts that I did which were pointedly against your will, and forgive me for not speaking up when I should have. Forgive me for neglecting your word. Forgive me for not really prizing you in my heart. Forgive me for not taking the risk of loving people who are difficult. Forgive me for not speaking a word of encouragement or praying with someone because it would interrupt my day. Forgive me for not going out of my way to engage people who are hard to love. Do you realize how that changes the number? This is what Jesus is doing in a very kind way to Simon. He's saying, look... Your definition of sin is way too small. And therefore, this woman, she sees her number, she knows her, she knows something about it, she knows it's huge. You have no idea. You have no idea. Look, why, what about you? Why are you so cold? Why are you so cold hearted? Why is it that you feel like, you know, my heart, when I walk in this room, sometimes barely engages? It's because we are not in touch with our sin. You know, we don't confess our sins here because we have, we we think people should feel bad about themselves. We do so because we say, you know, being in touch with your number, that is the key. That is the gateway to joy. It frees us. It opens up your life. It gives you this sense of, wow, I need this. What a marvelous Savior. What an incredible God. What depth of love. See, why is it you don't know your number? Because many of us have a simple Simon definition of sin. It's a simple Simon definition. I didn't do, I, you know, I, I didn't go those places that that person did. See, the parable redefines our categories. It redefines what faith is. It redefines our definition of sin, and it redefines for us the cost of salvation. A friend of mine told me recently that you can go online and look at the national debt clock. Are you familiar with this? You can go online and you type in debt clock, and you can see it'll show you, you know, a big number, and it's flipping over constantly, and it's the size of the American national debt. Now, I would, hes- I would, I would venture to say that most of us don't think about the national debt very often. You know, what are the things that occupy our thoughts? What am I having for dinner? Why is the Philadelphia Parking Authority so inefficient? How are the Phillies doing? You know, why can't I get a parking spot in this bleepity bleep street? You know, those are the things that occupy us. The debt is one of those things that we all know that's out there. We all know it's big. We all know it's kind of incomprehensible. And therefore, it doesn't really register. Yeah, I looked it up, and I couldn't tell you. I had to look up how to read the number because it comes to 14 14 numbers. It's a big line. I'm like, 
I don't even have a category for this. It's 13 trillion and change, and it's going up. You can watch the numbers flip. It's going up all the time. Now, why isn't this something that maybe crosses your brain but once a year? Why do you think a lot more about the Philadelphia Parking Authority than you do about the national debt? It's because it's enormous. It's out there. We don't know how to count that. It doesn't register internally with us. See, like the national debt, I would tell you that you don't know how to count your own number. That your number is probably beyond your calculations. It's bigger than you think it is, and it's changing all the time. And yet there is one person who does know how to count that. Right? Our Savior knows. Our Savior knows. Look, this lender, debtor illustration, should be pretty close to home for us, right? I mean, imagine, imagine this scenario, which is not hard to imagine. You know, a developer comes and borrows a whole bunch of money to build some condos. And when the recession hits, suddenly he's left with half-built buildings, no buyers, and a huge load of debt. Now, he goes to the bank and says, hey, I'm really sorry. You know, I'm just not going to be able to come through on this one. And if the bank forgives the debt, what happens to that money? It doesn't just go poof, right? It doesn't just disappear somewhere. What happens in the bank? they got to restructure. They close a branch. they got to tighten their belt. Maybe they go into default. But the debt doesn't just disappear, Debts don't go away somewhere into the air. They are either transferred or they are paid. Someone else must pay them. Jesus Christ is the one who came. And he comes to us. And he came with his own blood poured out for your number. For my number. And he paid all of it. Every last bit on the cross. See, Jesus tells this story about himself. And the, the people at the, at the dinner are like, who is this guy who even forgives sins? And that is exactly the question. Who is this that forgives my national debt? What about you? It's a freeing thing to know your number. It's a freeing thing. It's a joy-giving thing. It's a joy-releasing thing. It's a long-acting, slow-release joy capsule in your life. If you could begin to say, I need to be more in touch with the fact and the depth of my sin. This is how big our Savior is. Who are you? Who are you in this parable? Who are you in this passage? It's time to take off the jersey and look at the stripes underneath and make a realistic call about yourself. Am I Simon? Am I this prostitute? See, this isn't just a parable that Jesus tells to a woman who is a sinner and to a Pharisee who's a sinner. He tells it to us. Jesus is no less present in this room than he was in that room. Look, you don't come here to hear a bald guy lecture you in an ugly gym. You come this morning into the very presence of Jesus. He is here. He is every bit as here and present with us in this place as he was sitting at that table. And he asks us the same question he asked this woman. What about you, this man? What about you? 
Do you recognize the depth of how much you need this Savior? See, Jesus, His presence being here means that every person in this place will either walk out of this room like the Pharisee or the woman. Will walk out and say, Man, I had no idea the number and therefore the size of grace in my life. Or walk out hardened and say, who does this guy think he is? Who does this guy think he is? What about you? Do you know? Can you find yourself in the story? You know, Simon has forever focused on, look at this woman. What a sinner. Jesus shifts the focus at the end of the parable to saying, let's not look at the sin. Let's look at the response to grace. Verse 47. He who's been forgiven much loves much. That's what I want to ask you. Who are you in the story? You know, the passage itself gives us a couple of um, diagnostic questions, like tests. Who am I? How do I? Who am I? How do I fit in the story? How do I know whether I'm a Pharisee or a woman? Here's how you know. First, how do you see other people? Remember Simon. He's seen enough. He's seen enough. Jesus has to say, look, can you see her? How do you see people around you? You know, do you have disdain for others? Is it hard for you to love critical people? Is it hard for you to love messy people? Do you look at others as sort of unworthy subjects that when you do have time for, are, should be beneficiaries like celebrating you, carrying you around on their shoulders. Oh, thank you. Or are you so aware of your own number that other people, you look at other people and you're like, man, Jesus loves them too that way? Look at the numbers that Jesus is killing here. What about this? How you view your treasures. The woman walks in the room and she's wearing a vial of perfume around her neck. Very, very expensive. It was a tool of her trade. It was something that she would use in her prostitution, in her line of work, to cover up body odors. It's gross. But she comes to Jesus and what does she say with her treasures? She she looks at these things and she says, I have a new use for this. And she pours it out at Jesus' feet. What about you? See, by comparison with Simon, Simon is, everything that he does is holding back. Holding back affection. Holding back on water. Holding back on oil. His life is defined by holding on. Hers is by pouring out. What about you with your treasures? The thing, the material goods God has given you, given you, do they show a person whose life has been freed by grace? Or do they show a person who's holding? And finally, the affections, the emotions. Look, we live in a culture where emotion is everything. And I don't want to say, like, look, you have to have an emotional experience of Jesus every day where you're crying and pouring out. But tears count, people. Tears tell you something. If your eyes have been dry for a long time, it tells you about your heart. It says, really? How much are you aware of your need? How much do you see your need for the Savior? Emotions aren't everything, but they are a lot. You know, dry eyes are a sign of a cold heart. 
One thing I long for in a, for us as a community is to see us actually become unhinged in our worship. A little bit more like, man, how could I not but worship this kind of Savior? You know, they would, it would, it's a sign of gospel work in us. So what about you? Jesus is calling us. Take off the jersey. Look at the ump stripes underneath. Who are you? Who are you in this story? You know, last week I talked about stale grace. And I said, you know, that grace in our lives can be like your web browser. You know, you, you put up a page on your internet, and if it stays there too long, the, the data gets old. It stops responding. You have to hit the, the refresh button over and over and over again to kind of get, keep the information current. And this is what, honestly, confession is for our souls. It's a, it's a, it's a refresh button. You know, last week I talked about, hey, how do you know? How do you know if you're a person who's filled with pride? And today I want to say this. This is how you respond to this. If you find yourself like me to have your Simon days, where you're, you feel like you're very distant from God, this is the refresh button of grace in your life. Getting in touch with how much you need your Savior. How much you've sinned. How much His grace is sufficient for you. How large His number. One of the things about this story that I love about so many of the stories in Scripture is we don't know what happened next. It's open-ended, right? We don't know what happens to this woman or to Simon. And I think there's invitation in that to us. There's invitation to say, look, you know, it's true. Prostitutes quickly turn into Pharisees. People who are in touch with their sin can very quickly. Some of you know this. Your hearts become cold like this. But it doesn't have to be that way. There's an invitation in the story. Simon, look. Let's readjust the vision. Can you see? There's an invitation to you and to me. Can you refresh the story of grace in your life every day? Can you find new, fresh grace? This is an invitation for the fellow Pharisees with me in this room. Jesus gives this kind of renewal. Would you come and receive? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.